Welcome to the England Athletics Podcast. My name's Alex Seftel. Today you're going to hear from five important people who do great things in the sport. That includes an inside look at one of the most popular events on the nation's athletics calendar, the night of the 10,000 metre PBs. You'll also hear a chat with a group of people with a wealth of experience from competing, coaching, officiating, team managing and more. All four of them serving on the England Athletics Board. We'll introduce them in a moment after starting off with the first part of my interview with Ben Pochi, the volunteer organiser of the event dubbed the Glastonbury of Athletics that has brought tremendous atmosphere to 25 laps of running on the track. Here's some background on Ben and the idea behind what he does so well. Well, I've been a member of Highgate Harriers, I think, since 1984. So I I enjoyed all the benefits of doing club kind of grassroots events. I had never organised a track event prior to Night of the 10,000 Metre PBs. I had organised several closed road corporate running events, low level, but not club level stuff. So I had some experience of hosting events for three to 500 people, just like 5Ks in a park, basically. For those events, I always tried to make them a bit different because the people running them were not people looking specifically for PBs. They weren't from a club community. They were looking for running for, for fun. And so in those events, I was trying to look at it through their eyes, you know, whereas we're only ever concerned with the time and we don't care about atmosphere. I was thinking, well, these people probably do care about how the event feels and what makes them smile while they're running or when they finish. And so for those events, I used to do a small amount of adding additional touches that maybe you wouldn't get at a normal Park 5K. So I used to have a few circus entertainers rock up and entertaining them pre and post the race. Um, small stuff like that. When I came up with the idea or I, I saw that I thought there was a need to address the, the gaping hole in kind of 10,000 metre track running, that was when I started, I suppose you could say, I started to think, well, hang on, we've done some different things at these low level 5K events. Why? What's to say that they also can't play a positive role in what we're trying to achieve at, you know, what you want to call you know, more serious club level track events? Um, and so I suppose that was a little bit of crossover. So then when did this idea come about and how did you go about forming it into the event that it is today? Well, the I think the idea probably came about in probably about 2012. And it was a mixture of, you know, celebrating and watching people like Mo Farah picking up gold at the Olympics over the distance of 10,000 metres. But then seeing the gap between what he was achieving at Olympic level and domestically what was going on for athletes who were looking to be the next Mo Farah. So at the time, they were, I suppose there were two clear things. One was the British Championships was being run, you know, and 10,000 metre running was really seen as like, the, you know, the bastard child of athletics. It was the ugly duckling put on a Friday before the weekend, British champs, no one in the stadium. And because it was on the same weekend, you'd have people torn between, are they doing the 10,000 or the 5,000? And the 5,000 was always generally the saucier event with a deeper field higher quality performances throughout and then the 10,000 sat there really and I think in 2013 that was the year that Ali Dixon turned up and was the only woman runner standing on the start line 
and they tried to cancel her event and they they eventually agreed that she could run with the men and again there was a real paucity of men I, I don't know if it was less than 10 actually on the start line you know and this is the British Championship so you've got that for me which was an abject failure for you know the British champs what should be the highest level in our country and then you had the fact that people like Andy Vernon at the time who was arguably our best 10,000 meter runner trying to get Olympic and world championship qualifying times it was considered the norm by then that people like Andy had to fly to America to Stanford to run in a good quality race to get the times and so it just you know I think I'd be over selling myself to say that I thought back then we could definitely do it I did think there's an opportunity to try it's um it's a track I'd had experience of doing road races outdoor and there's so many complications when you're on a public highway in some ways it, the track is like god it's easy in some respects because uh, safety risk assessments public vehicles none of that is an issue that you really have to worry about so I then started to think right maybe there's an opportunity if we start really low level maybe we could create a 10,000 meter event that tries to kind of over the long term, try and challenge what has become the norm in our country for 10,000 metre racing, essentially not to exist. Um, and so, yeah, we had the goal of what could we do as an event to improve the British standards of 10,000 metre racing? And with my own personal hat, or while I was never the level of Andy Vern, and I, I, was a, I was a decent club level runner back then, and I, I knew that my performances were always, without doubt, always improved when there was atmosphere at an event, you know, and it was so hard to race 10,000 metres with no atmosphere, like 25 laps of the track, zero atmosphere. I suppose they were the twin initial ideas, really, was number one, let's create an event where we try and act as a beacon to our nation's 10,000 metre wannabes and say, we want to get you all together and we want to help you run faster. And then it was also, what can I do? as an event organiser to improve atmosphere so that these guys are going to have the best, if they do commit to this event, to give them the best opportunity and the best conditions for them to run quicker times. So what challenges then have you overcome and perhaps what are you still facing in terms of challenges? There's always different small challenges, but the big broad challenges, I think, are time. A big part of the event almost kind of DNA is the fact that it is on the day it is hosted by volunteers and it's non-for-profit and I as the race organizer I work as a volunteer and so you know that that's a big part of our sport grassroots club level sport and I've I've used it really in a way to kind of beat national governing bodies to help me sponsors to help me and it's really worked in our favor because you know I'm not taking anyone's pound of flesh I talk to spectators about coming to the event and it's all for free. I'm not in it to get any money from your wallet. So it's been great. But then obviously the obvious downside to that is as the event has grown, it takes more and more of my time, which obviously there's, you know, I'm not compensated for. So it's a case of <laughs> trying to work the amount of time, the huge amount of emails, meetings to get sponsors on board, to get athletes and work that around a normal life where you are trying to earn an income. So I suppose, yeah, time is a constant challenge. And as the event grows, so does that challenge really as a reality. But I mean, I think, I mean, I've said it many times, Night of the 10,000 is, I think, just one variant of, of how we can present our sport on the track. And I think it definitely isn't 
the single template or the answer. And I think maybe people listening to this will have lots of other ideas about where it can go off. So I wouldn't say for one minute that it race organizers have to do it as I do it as a volunteer. And once events get up and running, I think there's a good argument that they should be compensated so that that time they're investing isn't time they're trying to claw back elsewhere to, to, to get money. But yeah, time is probably my biggest challenge. And I'd say initially it was commitment, commitment mainly from athletes. And I think I'm sure some organisers who might be listening to this will appreciate it. But I mean, back in the early days, I put quite a lot back onto the athletes because, yes, we were trying to create a better 10,000 metre environment for them to run faster times. But my big thing to them in all my communication was this also lands on your shoulders as athletes to take some responsibility. If you want the better event, then you need to commit to coming to my event. And if you enter it, the commitment is you race, because especially in 10,000 meter racing, you know, you've only got X amount of places on the track, places sell out. And then what tended to happen is as it got closer and closer to race day, people would drop out of the race. It's a big commitment. People didn't want to fail over 25 laps of the track. And so, yeah, as a challenge, commitment from the athletes to support the event. And clearly, the event needs to be something that the athletes want. There's no good putting on an event and then demanding the athletes support it. But if there is this mutual agreement that what you're putting on is what we want, then I was I was really strong at saying it's, it, it needs to be some form of collective responsibility. We all together need to make it better we all need to make our sport better more exciting more opportunities for you to run fast times and so yeah getting that commitment initially from the athletes to be part of the event success and I'd say the same about the spectators you know we get eight nine thousand people down to Parliament Hill and again it, initially we put it on them we say if you want to have a special event you know a social some an annual celebration of our sport it really is down to you guys to be there to make it and they all have so to a person i'd say you know thank you to those guys but initially it was a challenge was getting that level of commitment and i think race organizers tend to think especially at club level where everyone most people do it and then again there's no money in it people tend to do it as a kind of we're doing our job to help the sport i think it's no bad thing that sometimes we we go back to the athletes that we're trying to help to say they need to be part of that process so um, in the early stages, if you've got a clear objective for what your event is, if you can really be as non-opaque as possible, be really transparent, talk to the athletes, talk to the officials. If you can get everyone on side about what you're trying to achieve, you've got such a better chance of getting that commitment, which was always one of my early challenges. Ben Pochi, the organiser of the night of the 10,000 metre PBs, which is coming up later this month. Later, you'll get some insight on some of the risks that he's taken to try and make the event a success, which it certainly has been, of course, hosting the British trials for the Olympics, World Championships, the European Cup and getting on BBC TV. Now, I'm delighted to say we can bring in four people whose point of view holds a lot of weight as far as shaping the sport goes. We're going to discuss competition, but also coaching, officiating and what needs to change in the sport and how you can fit in being a volunteer around a busy life. So let's start with some introductions. My name is Lorna Booth. I'm a double Olympian, former British record holder over the 100 metre hurdles, Commonwealth Games gold and silver medalist. 
I'm currently um, an elected non-executive director of EA. I belong to Sutton District, which I've belonged to since I was 11 years old. Um, and I'm a life member, also a life member of Surrey County. I am now a coach, coaching athletes from, um, from grassroots right through to international level. And I've had various positions within sport, um, including working for the World Athletics and Sport England. I'm Janice Kaufman. I live up in the northeast of England. I'm a member of Gateshead Harriers. I'm a coach and an official, but I've never been an athlete. My sport was racket sports, so uh, I've transferred across. Um, I'm also on the England Athletics Board and chair of the Northeast Regional Council. Hi, I'm Matthew Dalton. I'm a member of the board of EA and, well, that's through the route of England Council, which I chair. And behind that is my chairmanship of the Eastern Region. I have been an athlete, a little bit less successful these days than I used to be, but um, master's level at the moment, so 400 metre hurdles and sprint hurdles predominantly. I'm both a coach and an official as well. Clive Boyner, um, I'm members elected, board director. Um, I've been in the sport now for the uh, the best part of sort of 50 years, initially as an athlete, sort of reasonable sort of county standard. Then got into coaching sort of 40 years ago and had that coaching certificate ever since. Done some officiating qualifications, chaired uh, City of Norwich Athletic Club and latterly have really got involved in sort of the management. So I'm chair of uh, athletics in Norfolk, also sports all in Norfolk, uh, looking after the Eastern Young Athletes League and obviously now a member of the board. So uh, quite a lot on in the sport. So what's fascinating about all of you is that you've all found many ways to continue in the sport and add strings to your bows so it would be quite some uh, orchestra if we all had you together in that metaphor interesting to reflect on why you do what you do and, and what you enjoy most about it what really kind of gets you out and down there to the club or, or whatever in, environment it's in so uh, Clive what do you enjoy most about what you do probably most enjoyment is probably sports all that's really seeing athletes who sort of, in, in some cases, may not aspire to be sort of full athletes, probably achieve their greatest achievements in 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 the sport. So yeah, so being part of that environment and, and yeah, the atmosphere certainly at some of the regional championships and the, and the national championships. Yeah, that's that's a really enjoyable. It's hard work, but it's uh, it's also really enjoyable being part of that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's a competition that's really cherished. I think cherished as something that we've done for many years and and has been the the starting point of of the enjoyment for many young people. Lorna, what do you enjoy most about what you do? Of course, your history in athletics has been so multifaceted and it's something that you thrived at on the biggest stage of all, as you said. So, I mean, I've always been passionate about athletics since I was um, knee high. And um, I think for me, with the experiences I have and and the ability I have, I'm able to to put back into the sport to help help different areas in the sport. But also I... um, through my son, I, I came into coaching and, and I feel there's there's so much to offer the young people. So I like to, you know, to help to coach, um, help to support them in all the different ways, whether it be actually in the sport or outside of the sport. You know, I have a passion. The sport, I think, is the way to, to teach the kids to learn about time management and commitment. Yeah, there's a lot of giving back, I think, that's evident across coaching uh, officiating as well um Janice you, you mentioned about your experience in both of these roles you're someone who's, who's also won a 
sports personality award as, as well what do you enjoy most about what you do well I enjoy the coaching most uh, and whilst it's lovely to to coach young people and you can see their progression I like coaching the seniors it's um, it's much harder for them to improve they have to work harder much, much smarter I still have a few young athletes that I coach but um, the reward is seeing uh, people progress, I think, uh, get more coordinated and improve their technique. I guess the beauty of our sport is that there's so much that's different that I'm going to probably choose two examples which are completely different. I I love taking a nine, ten year old who's never been anywhere near a hurdle before and has been down the track for a few weeks, probably just running on the flat and and helping them through that first stage of getting past in in a lot of cases the the fear of running over the hurdles so that very basic starting a youngster and and instilling that passion within in in this case hurdles is something that um that, that I love but i have to admit i absolutely love timekeeping as strange as that might sound particularly when there's um when there's an electronic to time oneself against so that pursuit of betterment for myself within the discipline of officiating, I find great fun. And the atmosphere we have on a stand sometimes is is great. And so very different examples, but but that's the great thing about the sport and the different aspects that people are involved in, that there is so much for everyone necessarily. No, that's really interesting. The atmosphere within the stand of, of officials, I don't think we tap into much and talk about that very much in this sport. Definitely do that more. Um, I'm going to ask you all to, to pinpoint one anecdote or moment in your career that you can choose between a, a range of things you know this might be the easiest one that's made you feel proud or it could be inspired or something that's made you laugh or cry or proud inspired or made you laugh or cry I, <laughs> gladly I sent this in advance so you might have uh, had a chance to think before being put on the spot Janice my proudest moment would have been when I was coaching a Paralympic sprinter and um, I didn't start coaching her until she was 30. Um, so she thought her best days were behind her. But she qualified to go to London 2012. And in the 100 metres and the 200 metres, she ran a PB. Um, she didn't get a medal. She came fourth. But really proud that she she ran a PB uh, coming up to the age of 32. And her name was? Hazel. I want to say Simpson, but that was her married name. <laughs> It was 2012. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Lorna? Can I say more than one? <laughs> yeah. Say, I've, got, I've got so many that I think my, my <laughs> proudest moment is my son started uh, athletics really late. In 2010, he won the England Nationals at 19 and he ran a 10.25, which was way, way, way over his PB that he'd done. So for me, I mean, I was in the stands and, and I cried. So I was proud and I, I cried at the same time. Um, and he was being coached by Lloyd at the time. And Lloyd was at the airport just about to get on the flight. So for me, that that for me is my one of my proudest moments. I think also I coached Imani Lansico from when she was 11. She needed a little bit of um, support. And uh, I suggested that she run in the under-20s championships and she was just 16 she went along and we had to take one step at a time. So we got into the heats and we got the semi-finals. and then she wasn't going to do anymore. She, she was too scared and, and she ran. And I said to her, if you make fourth place, you're going to make the world relay team. And uh, she ran her heart out and she got fourth and, and made the world, the world junior champs. So for me, 
those are, I think, two of the proudest moments. And obviously she's gone on to, to greater things. But yeah. Fascinating that you chose moments that weren't within your own career, but seeing the success of others. Do you think sometimes that it's more about seeing other people's success from the sidelines when you're you're in it? Those emotions aren't the same. Do you know, I think my personality is I love to see people do well and I'm always behind and supporting other people. So, yes, I've had my own proud moments, but I think the ones that stand out for me was where I've helped to support somebody else, help to support the others, and they've come through and excel. So I think that's why they're my greatest moments. And, and they they actually, both those moments made me cry. And, and I just think coming from being an athlete and now being a coach, you get a better understanding also, and you get a feel of, of you know what it's like, but when, when you're able to help somebody else to do it, it's even a greater feeling. Matthew, a moment that's made you proud, inspired, or has made you laugh or cry? Well, Alex, you made me change tack a little bit there, but I will stick with where I was. I, I was very proud, I have to admit, to, to do quite well in the World Masters Champs in Perth in Australia. So I wasn't thinking of that, to your point, actually, when, when you posed the question. But I guess personally, that was that was great. Um, I have to admit that two things from my own club, because at core, I'm, I'm still a club man. I remember taking, following on my example earlier, a couple of very, very young sprint hurdlers from from eight and six or seven years later i remember right at the end of the season watching them very proficiently in the first event in the eastern area combined events champs when they were you know in their mid-teens by that stage and i hadn't coached them directly for a number of years but but i was very proud that they were then you know fully fledged athletes being successful in, at a fairly high level and that, that i did as i said previously instilled that in passion within them and I, I guess as Lorna's had a couple I'm going to be very sneaky and sneaky in a second <laughs> I was very proud when Peterborough AC and Neen Valley Harriers joined together uh, having split in the 1970s um, in the last few years because I, I chaired the club for five years in the run-up to that happening and I was extremely proud that that kind of administrative strength and base within Peterborough was seen fit to be joined together with its um at the time competitive club so that that was quite a proud moment yeah for sure and that was something achieved i'm trying to remember where it fitted around the pandemic whether it was before or during it was 2019 so it was just before but actually that's a very good point because the integration of the club was made more challenging because of the the lack of the physical nature of training at that stage as we pass through the pandemic and um, the club's going from strength to strength. And I'm very proud that I was part of of putting that, that bedrock structure in place for that to happen. Yeah, it's great to see that that's been successful. Many clubs have merged across the years, haven't they? But uh, that's one for the historians. Clive? Yeah, as the precedent's been set now, I'm going to join in now. So I've got two from a long time ago. So I had the pleasure of being in Cosford when Sebco broke the 800 metre indoor world record. The cacophony of people stamping on the boards and clapping was was unbelievable. So that was ex- extremely inspirational. And a few years after that, I took over a sprint squad uh, with a lady who was always coming second or third or yeah, second or third in the 100, 200 as a veteran. I convinced her to run 400 metres. And a couple of years later, she was actually the European champion at over 50s. A lady was um, Yvonne Priestman. So that was, that was sort of quite a proud moment, having sort of changed her event. And a bit more recently, getting very sore hands at the World Champs when Mo was running his 10K for 25 laps and standing up and 
again, a lot of cheering, a lot of losing the voice uh, that day. And then actually one from just a few weeks ago, the, the National Sports Hall Championships. Um, Norfolk had its uh, 10th winning national team. So little Norfolk managed to get the uh, 10th team to win the nationals. And the, uh, the young lad who won the all-rounder championship, I coached him. So uh, it was a really personally a proud moment from from two reasons, obviously being chair of the, the county and obviously as chair of the coaching the individual. So, uh, yeah, that was more recent. So what I'm getting from this conversation already is that we're touching on elements that, again, are always talked about. The stages of bringing through athletes, the satisfaction as a result, adapting to scenarios, changing of events, lots of coaching skills that, that are sometimes underrated, but means so much when everything is, is got right. Janice, as a hurdles coach, a particularly proud moment you were going to say. Yes, so you get proud moments all the time. So when you're coaching young athletes, the first time they run a race and they've managed three strides between the hurdles for the whole race is always a proud moment. And it's a it's a turning point for them because it gives them so much confidence then to go out and, and really run it. You get those two or three times a season when you're coaching young athletes and it's great it's a really good feeling absolutely now we'll return to this roundtable discussion in a few moments here first is the second part of the chat with ben pochi from the night of the 10,000 meter pbs how would he sum up in a few words what the big aim of his event is the main objective was always to help british athletes run faster and i think having a simple objective really helped bring everything back into focus every time because people will try and pull you away with other things that they may want. But I think if you have a clear objective and you've got agreement from key people that you think are going to make it work, then then that really helps. The amazing atmosphere that did exist at club level between training partners, at races, between training groups, between different clubs. I'd, ne- I'd never really seen all that fantastic club atmosphere transposed onto a kind of high-level event. So it was trying to help athletes' performance by finding a way of leveraging that atmosphere. That's what we've, you know, we've done with spectators on the track and creating an entertainment side to really try and allow club members to come and be part of the event and put their thumbprint on it, you know, all that positive energy. How would you like to see your event develop or grow in the future? It could be through sponsorship, through audience or other ways. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think I think the really honest answer is I I live each year essentially year by year because there are so many components that go to making the event happen. I essentially try and make each year that's going to be the next year's event the best we can because I never really know what is around the corner. There are lots of elements out of my control where we host the event in terms of the facilities and in terms of sponsorship and other things regarding to national governing bodies. So essentially every year where I'm given the opportunity to host and we're given the opportunity to integrate the British National Championships, you know, and the trials, be it for the World Champs or the Olympics, basically just try and make each year the best year we can. Um, don't actually do much forward planning beyond the 12 months ahead. And I think that's also on a practical level. It's because it's the, the amount of work that goes into it, really. But yeah, maybe the biggest thing we would try and do long term is influence other events so that if Night of the 10,000 long term ceases to exist for whatever reason, other events are popping up that while not necessarily doing what we do, they are maybe inspired in a way to try new ideas and kind of take athletics to new people in different ways. On that note, what would be your 
message to try and inspire and motivate other competition organizers and it could be people who are very experienced in this realm or who aren't it's really time consuming so obviously getting people to help but in the world of social media now we kind of think we're communicating by putting things on facebook or twitter or instagram and yes that's that can send a message about you know the date of an event but actually communicating so i spent you know i'm not a big social media user but i've now apparently got like 1500 facebook friends and that was all from the early days of setting the event up was communicating individually to key people I wanted to be involved, be that the athletes, be that the officials, be that sponsors. And it's really time consuming, but that individual communication with people that you want to kind of come on the journey with you for your event, how it's changing. That was really, really important, I think. And then was it went a big way to helping their investment and them feeling part of the event. Um, so yeah, communication that, that works so be that mass communication where you're you need to tell enough people about what you're aiming to do but then individual communication where relevant to get people's feedback being strong with your idea and and holding firm you know our athletics world is is diverse there are lots of different people with different views and that's great but equally there are lots of opportunities for different events that will suit different people i think and so i think it's knowing when you set out that you will not you will not be able to please everybody all the time. And I don't think you should try. And I think our sport sometimes fails by looking to keep every single person happy. And I just think that's, that's not always possible. I think within the bounds of kind of, you know, you, your club or your organization are prepared to do, you want to take committed people with you on this journey. And it's to acknowledge that you may not be able to get everybody on board but it may well be there are other events that will appease and keep those people really happy as well. So I think a bit of a balance and I think kind of being strong with your conviction, if, if from your initial kind of research and talking to athletes, you know, you feel it is backed up by other people's beliefs. That's probably the hardest thing. I mean, back in the early days of night of the 10,000, it would have been very easy not to have done various things. So many people perhaps didn't think it was such a good idea. So definitely recommend sticking to your guns in that respect. It's been billed as the Glastonbury of athletics at times. You've had an unusual and, and wonderful double-decker bus, bridge over which people can drink beer and go through the sort of tunnel, the man with the gong. <laughs> Just give us a flavour of some of the wonderful things that you've had, what's worked best, maybe what hasn't worked as well, uh, and what you've enjoyed the most out of it. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned the gong man. I love the gong man. That gave me so much pleasure. Um in the early days, building our what we call our lactic tunnels of love. So the 30 meter by nine meter marquees we build on the home straight and the back straight. That was all about trying to increase atmosphere because a, a, a track is a huge area. And even when you've got three, four thousand people, as we did in the early days, it's amazing how atmosphere can dissipate quite quickly in such a large area. And so putting a roof over it was a way of literally trying to hem in some of that atmosphere and amplify it for the athletes and and for the spectators so you you felt more atmosphere at the event because events like this can carry momentum i think our lactic tunnels of love were one of our big initial kind of structural changes and you know there was there was lots of question marks about whether that could work would should i be doing it or not and so at the time it felt like quite a big deal you know and now we do it every year and people expect it but first time we did it and it was at the olympic trials it was 2016 that i felt was it was a real success 
And then, yeah, then we built on that things like the bridge, like you mentioned. So getting them on the infield, you know, and, you know, to club people that felt like, you know, you're touching sacred ground. You know, obviously there were no long throws happening, so we're all safe. But actually using aspects of the track, areas of the track that were normally no go zones, I think was quite exciting. And in fact, (laughs) track etiquette is so ingrained into our spectators. The first year we built the track, we had real issues getting people to use it because they they all assumed that it must be just for officials or something like that and they weren't allowed over there and we were we were literally trying to come on please come across the bridge spectate from the infield once you've got some of the core there then your next task is how would someone who's a hardcore athletics fan what would encourage them to bring a friend along who is not from the athletics world you know because that's what you're looking to do normally we only you, know, you wouldn't dare bring a boyfriend or girlfriend to a hardcore athletics event because it's you know, it's a level of geekiness, just too much for early relationships. And so I was looking at ways that what could you do that would actually encourage them to bring that next level of friends along? So, yeah, having circus entertainers, having live bands, obviously having uh, an alcohol license on the premises. All these things slowly built up what we were trying to achieve, which was, you know, you can make atmosphere for the athletes for performance by turning it into a huge social event you would see more and more people on social media talking to friends they hadn't seen for a while saying, will I see you at night of the 10,000? It's almost like an annual get together. For, for me, that always fed into the atmosphere, which fed into performance. So the two always went hand in hand. But I think our sport isn't necessarily the best at social gatherings, at having something that is a, you know, celebrates all our friendships, all our networks that we have within the sport. And so, yeah, I was really pleased with how all the entertainment side of it has kind of helped facilitate a a social platform, which leads to atmosphere, which to me leads to increased performance in the majority of cases. Ben Pochi, whose event this year is coming up soon on the 20th of May, or might have already happened depending on when you're listening to this podcast. Just picking up on one of the things Ben said about time being a challenge. Thinking, of course, about the fact that all of you lead busy lives around families, as well as those of you who have full-time jobs. Just explain a little bit about how you fit athletics into your day, your week, your life. Matthew. Alex, that was a perfect question because just in the last five seconds, someone's asked me about what what a lorry driver should take as his load uh, here at the office. So that was perfect. (laughs) I guess the first thing I'd say is you mentioned family and my wife's very accommodating i must say that and uh but she understands that helping this sport is part of me and so you know that that keeps that rounded personality which which i like to think is rounded at least <laughs> that's what the first thing i'd certainly say that you need somebody who understands your passion and, and understands you sometimes being on webinars and calls in the evening and, and all the sort of things that we all do I'm quite fortunate that I work in a business that gives me some flexibility. So you end up, no doubt, like my colleagues, working a little bit out into the evening when necessarily other people might finish at five or six o'clock. You might go home and conduct a webinar and then start working again at sort of eight or nine o'clock. So I guess it's a degree of flexibility within the working environment. And I'm I'm thankful to my employer for doing that. But it's, it's good fun. I think that analogy, if you want something doing, ask a busy person. is. <laughs> He's absolutely right. I think the last 20 years in how can I put this community and and, and charitable roles has taught me that at least. Yeah, is it a completely different industry as well that you're in? Yes, we sell seed to farmers. 
So um, a little bit different to athletics. Absolutely. But it still reaches the regions of the country as well. Yeah. Clive, how do you fit athletics around your life? Well, actually, the pandemic changed me a little bit. And I I decided at that point that uh, rather than fitting athletics around work, work was going to fit around athletics. Um, so for the last uh, two years now, it's uh, athletics has been in the in the prime seat, which did allow me then to take on the, the board role um, and some extra coaching roles. In terms of obviously, yeah, family is obviously very important. Yeah, my wife knows knows a bit like Matthew. It's my passion, so she's very supportive again in terms of what I do with that side. Um, one of my daughters is actually a coach, so again, that's I see her down the track. So I don't need to go around the house sometimes, um, so that sort of helps as well. Work is now uh, second in the camp and actually athletics is, is first for me now. What's your profession by trade? Uh, so I'm, a, I'm an engineer. So uh, historically, we've built sort of sculptures for take that and things like that for some of their shows and engineering. Well, a very useful skill to have to be able to engineer and, and think about how everything should fit in its place and how everything should run. Efficiency and, and calculation comes in handy sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, particularly like process measurement and sort of audit trial as well. So uh, that, that's that's a really sort of yeah useful sort of skill that sort of transitions across. So uh, yeah, I mean I'm enjoying bringing that to the board. Janice, uh, I mentioned that um, sports personality award. Of course, that was uh, jointly with your son Richard, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so like Matthew, uh, my family are very supportive. My husband, in particular. Uh, puts up with my athletics and I put up with his 50-year collection of football programs and magazines. <laughs> so we, we've come to an arrangement there. Uh, unfortunately, now I'm retired, so I can give a little bit more to athletics. But previously, I worked in um, logistics, facilities and uh, security. Fairly long hours, but I'd just go straight from work to the track, um, get home, and we'd be eating our dinner at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> Everything had to fit around. Uh, of course, uh, one of my sons is a is a coach and coaches at Gateshead Harriers as well. And another of my sons is a rugby coach. So sport runs in the family, really. Yeah, Lorna, you've already mentioned uh, your son and his athletics as well. Of course, you've had multiple roles, including abroad, right, as a team manager. So how have you fitted that all in around your life? I mean, my, my life has slightly changed a little bit now because of COVID and redundancy. But um Prior to that, I was taking annual leave. So I'd always take annual leave to do duties. I, What I also did, I, I was on flexi. So I was able to go into work early, leave work early, so that I could get to the track on time. I did time where I had time in lieu, so I could use the time in lieu to, to go to different um, different events or whatever. So a lot of my holidays and, and, and spare time was taken up from work because I wasn't sort of in the last, I think, 15 or so years, I wasn't working in athletics. I was outside of the sport. So working for the for the Royal College of General Practitioners, it was a totally, totally different field. But, you know, they were quite supportive in me having flexi time. While my son was going to high school, however, I, I backed out of athletics to give him time so that I was then able to support him in in all his academics and then I came back into the sport because I'm a single parent so I raised him on my own but my son started the track when he was about two years old so he was he was already on the track sport was his life but not athletics you know I was able to to change things around a little bit um, and I just prioritized and just managed my time I don't know how I did it though because now I'm finding it really difficult to manage everything because there's so much on but yeah I think once you once you step back you realize just how much 
time management you have to put in into your life when you're doing a sport. Yeah, I think what one learns from from listening to all of you is how the these elements of time managing and dedication commitment are all quite inherent within one. You know, it's not something that you kind of switch on or switch off. You kind of have it. And that's one of the reasons why you have been so committed. So thinking then about an area in the sport, maybe that you'd like to see some change in or that, that some progression is needed or some modernization is needed. Some thoughts on this. Lorna, should we start with you? An area you'd like to see change in? I'd like to see coaching. I think for me, um, having now been in the, in the sport quite a while from different areas, I think I would like to see the coaching pathway and the tracking of the coaches to be changed. You know, for education system, I think we need to have good coaches in order to breed good athletes. We're losing a lot of our good, uh, good coaches. And I think coaches are part of that team that leads to good performance. We just need to have a fair and transparent system um, for the recognition of the coaches to evolve, but also um, so that the coaches can see where they're going, to see that there is a pathway. Probably something similar to you start off as, a, as a, an assistant coach, you go to a coach, and then what do you do? How do you get into the system? How do you progress on to being a performance coach going away with teams? Um, so I just think I'd like to see a clear pathway, but a support system in the education system for coaches get help from maybe mentors or something. I've been lucky. I think I've had a chance to to sit in with coaches such as John Smith, Bobby Kersey, Leo Davis, and I was coached by Tom McNabb and um, Frank Dick. So I've been lucky, but I can see other coaches there that haven't had that chance. And I think I'd like to see, see us doing more for coaches. My concern probably is entry points for volunteers, for both coaches and for officials. That's the lifeblood of the sport. Without those volunteers, you know, the athletes have got, you know, got no matches to go to because there's nowhere to run the matches. They've got no coaches to try and develop them. So I think that that's the key focus for me. And I think I'm, I'm really pleased that the officials, levels one, two and three, have now been transferred to England Athletics because that's in our, in our camp now and we can sort of try and really make sure those processes are correct. Matthew? Yeah, I'm going to take kind of Clive's comments and, and take it on a stage, I suppose, around the concept of officials that it is important that we get the education right in certainly at levels um, one, two and three and, and look at necessarily what formal education we're doing, perhaps at levels two and three. But for me, the principle of mentoring is critical. I'm, I guess my greatest interest in the sport is the progression of officials, not necessarily the numbers coming in at the very bottom, but those the, how those individuals progress through the pathway and, and in, in many cases, hopefully end up at level four and officiating at a national level. I think that's something that I have to admit both governing bodies have been not focused on as much as they could. And um, that's certainly an area of interest. And I think I agree with Clive, actually, we're making a lot of strides in the official space at the moment, um, a lot of positive strides. But I would certainly like to see a, a more integrated mentoring scheme through which both England and, and necessarily UK might be involved. Thank you. Janice? Well, I echo Lorna's points. There are some great people out there, but unless you're coaching an athlete at a high level, you perhaps don't get the opportunities to do as much uh, as people would like. Some of the club coaches don't get that opportunity to, to have the additional mentoring and um, training that perhaps they deserve. Uh, but more specifically for me, the young athlete pathway and how competition fits in with their their progression uh, as they go up through the age groups. 
and sometimes some of the rules get in the way of common sense and um, in the way of them progressing. Uh, but we're a rules-driven sport, so it's difficult to change that. But um, I'd like to see the competition structure go more along the terms of uh, long-term athlete development for the athletes, particularly at the younger age groups. So to open the floor then, does anyone have anything that they would like to add as part of this discussion then to round off? Yeah, I think I think my my perspective from being members elected is, and obviously we're all track and field sort of focused, but there's there are 6 million people out there enjoying our sport, either run, jump, throw. At the moment, only 172,000 of those are actually members of England Athletics. So, yes, is there some way of you know, enhancing that conversion rate, opening up the marketing, making it more aware? The driver here is to try and improve the sport overall. So if, if we could sort of engage with that, that uh, other 5,800,000 people, um, then potentially, as, obviously, as a, as a governing body, we can do a lot more. The principle of competition structure is an important one, Alex. I think it's, it's fair to say that in England, we are discussing that on a re- relatively regular basis, the principle of travel to matches for younger athletes, the principle of length of day, and, and, and the principle of length of day if not, is not necessarily just critical to the athlete, the parent, but also to the officials. So I think the sport coming together, and we've got a very disparate sport, we've got a lot of different competition providers, but those individuals coming together, agreeing on not necessarily a blueprint, but agreeing on something that is fit for perhaps the decade we're in now than necessarily it might have been for four or five decades ago when when people's lives were slightly different at the weekend so the evolution of competition is right up there in in where we want to be focusing yes there's sometimes a a conflict in thought between do we want less travel to competitions and therefore more competitions spread out but then as a result you might have less sort of base of officials at those meetings as opposed to you might have more trouble by having it in a regional centre. Yeah, I think we've got a lot of competition from other sports, particularly female sports now, female football and female rugby becoming prominent and also getting a lot more funding. We used to get a lot of young girls, so so particularly under 15 girls was always a big age group for us. But, you know, there's much more competition um, within different sports now. So... We need to make it more attractive. We need to market it well. Uh, we need to be providing a really good experience at the clubs and at competitions. It's a big challenge, I think. Yeah, the way to do that could be to market the way that quality athletics coaching can improve an athlete. An example would be Sam Harrison, the top UK female finisher in the London Marathon. She said that until she had a, a coach within a club, which is only something like um, five years ago or just under five years ago, and this is similar for, for a lot of athletes who have been in this scenario, you sort of they, they went out and they had a pace. They, they didn't necessarily yeah. regiment their, their structure to their week, to their training, and that's something that, that quality coaching has been able to provide, and that's just one success story. So maybe we need to be marketing the the opportunities that, that coaches can provide for people and, and, and what uh, that sort of quality training actually means as opposed to something that people might find as a training plan on the internet. The Liverpool footballer Trent Alexander-Arnold has set up an after-academy and, and what that for is for footballers who are released by academies and uh, one of the things that they might like to hear is that they have potential within another sport like athletics. Lorna? We've got a lot of kids that come into our sport to get fit, to go into other sports. So they're learning to run with us 
to go and, and to get fit to go into other sports but we've also got a lot of our athletics coaches are actually moving away from our sport and going into football and other other sports so we've got to find a way and, and I'm going back to this thing on coaching again is to keep try to keep our coaches so that they we keep our coaches in our sport yes we can share but we're losing our coaches to other sports as we are our athletes you know how are we going to keep them keep them in well thank you very much for joining and sharing your views and I hope people will find it really interesting to hear your perspectives within athletics but also outside of it as well because uh, you've done well to just make people understand how hard you work as people and then straight from work to the track at times so on behalf of everyone who will be listening you know thank you very much for your dedication and commitment through many years from you know, winning Commonwealth gold or World Masters medals, winning BBC Sports Personality Awards or fitting your your work around your athletics and taking on further commitments to really try and, and be part of a board that can oversee things and shape the sport. So thank you very much to all of you for everything you're doing and thanks for sharing your views. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Have a good weekend, everyone.